Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the re-relaunch of Unscripted podcast for Muslims living in the modern world. And today we're very, very blessed to uh, have an excellent guest and be speaking about a very pertinent issue that affects our community in a very, very serious way. We're going to be speaking about the experiences of, of, of black Muslims and how they're welcomed and, and how they feel within the Muslim community um, and what their, what their experiences are. So, uh, Nadim, who's our guest today? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We are very fortunate today to have a writer and poet uh, today to discuss this topic, Hodan Yusuf. So let's get, let's get into the topic. Hodan, why is this topic of anti-black racism within the Muslim community so important for us to discuss? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, I'm going to be blunt and honest, and I think I, I, I would never have a conversation about racism if it wasn't going to be one that was a very honest conversation. I'm not going to apologize mm-hmm. for any of the things, the topics that we're going to discuss today, because it's raw and it's real, and it's the lived experience of so many of us. But the first thing mm-hmm. I'll say is this conversation is actually very tiring. As a black person, I mean, this is the audio podcast. People can't see us and don't, you know, in fact, I can't see you either, but it's, uh, mm-hmm. um, we are, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black person. I'm a black woman. I wear hijab and khimar and jilbab. And so I'm visibly Muslim and very visibly also black. And for me to have these conversations around racism is actually a whole lived experience. Before I started wearing hijab, before I became a practicing Muslimah, before any of that stuff, I was born a black girl. I was born a little black baby in this racist world. So I have, mm-hmm. I'm, I've grown very tired of it. And I, you know, I don't know any black person who wakes up in the morning and says, I know what I want to do this morning. Let's go and have a conversation about racism. But I'm here and everyone around the world at the moment who is also discussing or writing or dealing with these issues is dealing with it out of necessity. It's, it's an unfortunate necessity right. that we are still here. We're still talking. We are still re-traumatizing ourselves because that's another thing people don't understand is that every time somebody has to discuss this issue, it's an issue that is my lived experience. So it's traumatic things that have happened to myself or people I know, people I care about, or just generally my wider communities. So it is a very tiring conversation, but a very essential, important conversation. And I'm glad we're having it. And we want to thank you for taking the time to to come on and, and to speak about these issues. Um, and like I, I can really say from from the bottom of our hearts, it, it means a lot that you're giving your, your time to us to, to, to do this today. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we, there's so much to unpack in this discussion of racism. Um, mm. And I would encourage anybody who's listening out there who wants to further understand anti-blackness within the Muslim community to go and seek out those resources that I'm, I'm sure are, are, are widely available. Mm. We can perhaps put some links up. But today we're talking about spaces and the unwelcoming nature of spaces mm. for black Muslims. Um, mm. And by that, or by spaces, we mean masajid, we mean cultural spaces, mm. events. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there's many, many other things that you can probably um, highlight mm. and mm. Um, enlighten us on. Mm. So why don't, we, why don't we start with masajid and, with, and, yeah. and, and the spaces within the masajid and mm-hmm. how black Muslims have, and it's interesting actually because you're a black Muslim and a woman, yes. um, that, that adds a further dimension to the kind of interaction you have with Masajid. Yeah. So why don't we, I mean, why, why don't you tell us about your experience um, and how you've navigated those spaces? Yeah, I mean, where, where to start? Um, <laughs> where to start? It's, uh, it's, it's difficult because the Masjid is the... Uh, metaphorical house of Allah, as we know as Muslims, it is the place you expect mm-hmm. to find sanctity, you expect to, to be able to express your spiritual relationship with Allah and pray in, in uh, relative safety. So as a Muslim, when you're, especially living in Western countries where masajid are um, it, uh, places of prayer, it's not, it's not easy for you to just say to a shopkeeper, for instance, if you're in a restaurant or a shop, uh, salah's entered like you would in a Muslim country and somebody would accommodate you, you have to go and find a, a masjid. And there's been more than one occasion where I've walked up to a mosque in this country and said, I need to pray. And it's the salah that is like leaving now, Maghrib or, and I've literally, been, I've literally been barred from entering the mosque. 
And I can see well, Asian women walking into the masjid with their children, taking them to madrasa. And there's clearly a space where women can enter. But it's, no, 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 you can't enter. But I have well, to pray. It's Maghrib. Where am I supposed to pray, Akhi? In the street? In, in the, in, where? In the street? Well, sorry, the no can do. Relatives of mine have physically been barred from mosques. Men, male relatives well, of mine have physically been barred. So it's a very real experience. So as well as having to deal with the racist, white racist society, we have to deal with, we, don't, we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't, it should, it's not something that I wake up and expect, but unfortunately it's the reality that we live in. I shouldn't have to go to a masjid and negotiate the fact that Asian women are being allowed in, but I'm not. That black brothers are not being allowed in, but, but other people are. That is, you know, mm-hmm. and, then, and then maybe we, you know, maybe that was a little while ago, some people can say. We've kind of moved on. People can physically step into the masjid. The other things that happen is some things that are, commonly described as, say, microaggressions. And these kind of terms mm-hmm. are when people will walk up to you, for instance, and I know this happens to men because for obvious reasons around hijab and stuff, people will just come and, and stick their hands on brother's hair, like just to come and pet him mm-hmm. like he's an animal, just to touch him or be derogatory about his appearance. Um, the other thing mm-hmm. people will always do to me and other black Muslims is question your Islam. Mm-hmm. Question, right. question your very Islam and say, oh, are you a new Muslim? And, you know, right. and maybe wait, later we can talk about the fact, or maybe I can just talk about it now, that I come from a part of the world that was actually Muslim before the subcontinent and most of Arabia. So yes. wh- where my ancestors are from, it's actually we've had, you know, if we, it's, it's not a competition. Astaghfirullah. You, you're Muslim from the day you take your shahada and that's it. And no one should question your, the validity of your iman and your, your, your right to be there, as it were. So that's, that's the kind of thing that happens. People will come and say, so when did you become a Muslim? Where, you know, when did you convert? Uh, I didn't. I, 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 was born into a Muslim, you know, I was born into a Muslim family that was born into a Muslim family that was born into a Muslim family from the first century when Muslims were migrating the first hijra that we forget that went to Abyssinia. This part of the world became Muslim. This part of the world was giving mm. refuge refuge to Arab Muslims who were being persecuted by their own cousins, by their own Quraysh relatives. These people, my ancestors, gave refuge and took in refugees. And the same descendants now are being sold in slave markets in Libya and being questioned whether they're Muslim or not in, in, the, in the masajid that we frequent. So these are the kind of things that happen. Another thing um, slightly extended from masajid is the issue of Muslim schools. As a, the Muslim schools have taken off, mashallah. They, they've taken off in a way mm-hmm. that made 15, 20 years ago, it really, they weren't that common. Now, mashallah, people who have, you know, made a lot of effort and they've opened a lot of schools and invested tremendous amounts of money and resources into educating our children with the uh, national curriculum, but also uh, uh, um, empowering kids with an understanding about their own faith. This is a minefield for black Muslim families. It's a disgusting minefield because you send your child, you scrape together your money, you, you send your kids to these schools when you have an option of a school that is down the road or across the road, which is entirely free. Mm-hmm. But you have chosen to get closer to Allah so that your children can understand their faith and be confident in their iman and their, and their sense of Islam and be strong in a society that is very... Um, Islamophobic. So there's that other right. dimension of, so you're, you're trying to take your kids away from these kind of environments where they'll be questioned as to why are you Muslim and why are you wearing hijab and why are you this, that, and the other. You take them to these schools sure. and your children are experiencing racism from not just students, but also teachers. It's, well, I mean, that's, um, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's what do you do? What do you do? Right. The spaces are very, very limited. I think this is one of the one, one, one of the things that you you mentioned there at the start about about the the assumption that you're you're in, you're a new Muslim or when mm. did you first become Muslim? Mm. I know from a lot of my interactions with with, with uh, close friends and, and and brothers of mine that they get the assumption is that they must have converted in prison, um, yes. and and mm-hmm. that that's a stereotype that they have to sort of beat back every time um, that that. They didn't. They're not just a a a, a prison a prison convert mm. or people people uh, f- assume assume that my wife took her shahada to marry me mm. um, uh, right. rather than rather than the fact that she was actually uh, already Muslim for mm. a number a number of years before we before we even right. even, even got married mm. um, and she actually converted before me as well. Alhamdulillah. Um, but all of these assumptions, subhanAllah, mm. that that um, are just constantly uh, aimed at the at, at the black community. Mm. When subhanAllah, and 
one of the interesting things that is, I think it comes from as well, hmm. is our, our view of black Muslims sort of starts and ends with Bilal. Yes. Um, yes. Who is an amazing Sahaba and had yeah. um, uh, many, many incredible attributes and, and, and uh, things that he did throughout his life. Mm. Um, but that's all that most Muslims seem to know about black and Muslim. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I really, I used to, I mean, I, we all love him. Like you said, he's a fantastic Sahaba. And I'm so inspired by all of the aspects of his life, every single aspect, the, the, the life he led before he became a Muslim, how he became a Muslim, even though he lived under the most abject oppression and, and, and horrible conditions as an enslaved mm-hmm. human being. But also every... When you think about Bilal, and like you said, this, the, the relationship, that, the, the lens through which Muslims who are not black look at black people is through this lens of an enslaved man. So they will say the slave Bilal, and therefore he had a great voice. He was, an, you know, he was um, uh, Mu'addin. He was the first Mu'addin. Right. And, he was, and so then you, you know, it will kind of confirm these stereotypes of oh, black people for uh, uh, singing or entertainment. Black people, oh, he was, he, he was of this build and that build. Therefore, black brothers should just be security guards at events that, you know, that, um, that this man had this kind of background. And therefore this whole, like you said, this idea that Muslims only become Muslim in uh, convert in prison. It's fantastic that brothers are converting and even when they go to those places, but, and no, no, there should be no, um, and we are not, neither of us are doing this, disrespecting anybody who has come from that background, but it's the lens that you are only this person, you are only a criminal, you are only mm-hmm. an enslaved human being. And people forget right. that at the same time of Bilal, there was also Najashi, who was a king in, in Ethiopia. Nobody wants to reinforce that idea that black people could have been royalty, that black people, that uh, Najashi, when he passed away in Ethiopia, he was the first person that Prophet وسلم, prayed Salatul Janazah sure. in absentia. So this is how we know that when someone's passed away, we can do Salatul Janazah if we are not present from that example when Muhammad prayed over this king who was a black man in Ethiopia. So we don't, we don't connect those things. And I think it's deliberate. Like you say, it's deliberate that the only reference that we have is Bilal. And I would like to talk about Bilal, actually, because the things we don't mention in our discourse, in our, in our conversations, in the wider Muslim community, is that when Bilal became a Muslim, he too was subjected to a lot of racist abuse and racism and discrimination from within the community that he lived in. And this community that we're talking about are the first groups of Muslims, the first, you know, that we, we look up to them and we admire all of these men and women um, because of the, mm-hmm. the, the struggles that they had. So they're all Sahaba in that, in that sense. Those people also had um, carried opinions and views and understandings because of the society they were raised in. So I'm not saying in this conversation that, Every single person who thinks a certain way and has these views, that's it, you're condemned and you're beyond redemption. These Muslims also carried these views. And what they did, which is what we are failing to do in this day and age, a lot of us, is addressing those things within ourselves and being utterly honest with ourselves first and foremost. So, for example, Bilal at one point was um, in a discussion with Abu Dhar. And Abu Dhar was a Sahabi who was, I think at that time, I might be incorrect, and if anyone's more learned and hears this, please feel free to... um, correct us and send messages. Mm-hmm. But he um, was a Sahabi who I think at the time was actually one of the promised Jannah, one of those who were promised Jannah. So this is a man who is so pious that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with him. However, he is not beyond reproach. He is not beyond correcting himself. Allah is, subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything. So he knows the future. Allah already knows that this man is going to have this incident and that he's going to correct himself anyway. But this is, I'm going to talk about the incident. He was in a discussion with Bilal. And he referred to Bilal as, oh, you son of a black woman, Ibn Sauda. Bilal's mother was a princess. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that she was enslaved because her uncle was Abraha when, from the Amal Field, the year of the elephant, when yes. the Ethiopians. So his, his own mother was the niece of royalty. He, they were enslaved. So imagine coming from that background. Imagine your mother was a woman who was a free woman who was a, was a princess in her own country. And then this happens and she's now an enslaved person. She marries um, this man who's also a slave, but he's a white Arab slave. He's a light-skinned, your average skin-toned Arab person. His name was Rabah. Now, nobody talks about the fact that Bilal's father was an was a Arab white man. We all talk about Bilal as if his, both his parents were black and we say Bilal al-Habashi and Bilal was black and Bilal was from Ethiopia. Bilal was not born in Ethiopia. He was born in, in Arabia. His mother was a black f- former princess who was enslaved. His father was an enslaved uh, white Arab man. 
we, dis- we, we disregard the fact that his own father, even in a patriarchal society that favors the fathers over the mothers, this man is still being referred to by his um, black um, heritage only, exclusively. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect to think about. And then there, when there's, he, there, there's a similitude there with uh, Barack Obama being the first black president. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to compare Barack Obama to Bilal, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I know what you mean. It's this whole one drop uh, thing that they do in America, that you are black and therefore that the blackness in, in racist people's understanding taints everything else. Therefore, you're just black. It doesn't matter what your other parentage is. We, we don't want to claim you. You can, the blackness can have all of you. Um, that's, that's the way that people are viewed. And so Bilal um, had this altercation or, or verbal conversation and it escalated and, and Abu Dhar called him a son of a black woman. Technically, his mother is black. He didn't say anything yeah. that is technically incorrect. However, he knows, we know in 2018, 1400 plus years later, that that was intended to be a derogatory statement, that he was being racially abusive. He knew, and they both knew, everybody there knew that he was being racist, to put it bluntly. Yes. And, what, and, the, and then what happened was Bilal was so angered. And this thing about black people, when we get angry about racism, it is valid. It is righteous anger. And I think that this, um, and a lot of us fear falling into that trap, especially with women, I know as a black woman, this idea of oh, the angry black woman. And it's a dismissive label that then dismisses the very legitimate anger, the very righteous anger that you have at something that was uh, uh, sent your way, which really shouldn't have come. So when Bilal got angry, he went to the Prophet ﷺ, because mashallah, he was blessed enough to be in that time. He went to the Prophet ﷺ and Every single story that we hear and read that is documented for us to read until the day of judgment is there for us to learn from. It's not bedtime stories. And we know this whole deen came and, and these things that are documented are for us as the future generations, the, the generations that were to come to learn. So this happens so that we can all sit back and go, okay, and then how did Muhammad respond to this? When Bilal came and said he was angry, he, you know, and he said, he said this to me, son of a black woman. Muhammad did not say, well, technically your mom is black. So what did he say wrong there? He didn't do that. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam didn't say to him, oh yeah, Bilal, come on, it's Abu Dhar. He's pious. He's going to heaven. Give him benefit of the doubt. He didn't say to him what I hear a lot of the time. Astaghfirullah, how can you doubt the intention of your Muslim brother? Astaghfirullah, he made a mistake. Forgive him. He didn't say forgive him. Mm. He didn't even say that, which is a very, you know, Islamic concept that we hear a lot. And I hear it the most when someone has committed a wrong against me. I don't hear it any other time. I hear it the most when someone has done an injustice to someone else and the person is being told, forgive the injustice. And what happened here was an injustice. Right. And Muhammad Sallallahu didn't do any of that. In fact, he approached Abu Dar and told him that he carried Jahiliya in him. He told him that he was wrong. Yes. He told him that you carry something from Jahiliya in you. And Abu Dar corrected himself. He took, this is why I was saying at the beginning that we need to be honest with ourselves. He didn't let his anger and his pride and his ego and every other thing that gets in the way of people when they are called up on their racism and they're pulled up on it. He didn't let any of that get in the way. He actually took a step back and decided that he understood what was being said to him and how wrong he was. And he told Bilal, to, he begged Bilal's forgiveness and he put his face on the ground and he said, step on me, put your, the foot that I insulted, the body that I insulted, the blackness that I insulted, put your black foot on my face because I'm the one with the problem. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I, I get emotional when I think about that because that is missing. People will say Bilal was black, Bilal was this, Bilal was that, and forget that Bilal lived in that society. Bilal had to deal with racism and the Sahaba who had sincerity in them dealt with their own racism. They didn't account mm-hmm. Bilal for it. Like we're being told today that we're being tone policed. What happens today? is that kind of incident might happen. Someone might say something racist. Someone black will hear it or see it or record it or, or discuss it with someone else. Another Muslim, usually very practicing, well, well-meaning people will come to you and say, oh, fear Allah, you're putting, it. he didn't mean it like that. What he said was this and actually, and, and start second guessing and giving 50 excuses for this person who has committed an indefensible act, who has said an indefensible thing. And then the tone police will gear up and have issues with the black person who's now becoming even more enraged by the fact that no one's understanding what they're saying. So I always wonder what would have happened if Muhammad was unavailable at the time. And if this altercation happened after he passed and what Bilal would have done and what, what the seerah would have, what, not the seerah, but what people would have said about Bilal. Say he didn't have Muhammad to hand to say this is an act of wrong. Say he just had his anger and say the people said, well, your mother's black anyway, so keep it moving. Why are you so angry? Say Bilal got more angry. Say he, he started to get, you know, and say things which were incorrect even. 
You know, you know um, it's, 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 it's a problem that we are not addressing and we are tone policing the wrong end of the spectrum. People are not investing as much energy. And I've had these conversations endlessly with mm -hmm. people, even within my own family. I've had these conversations mm -hmm. that it's exhausting. And I think sometimes Muslims, um, we think and we, um, we think by virtue of the fact that we have become Muslim or we're born into Muslim families that we can't possibly be racist, that racism is the reserve of white uh, Nazis, the, the far right, the alt right, that yeah. somehow we, we are absolved from it because we took the shit. And I think that's the mistake that then we've, we fail to then actually address it because we don't even accept that we are racist as, as communities. <laughs> This is part of the problem, isn't it? That we refuse to kind of see this within an intersectional framework. Wherein, mm. yes, as a South Asian person, I have experienced racism, but not to the extent that a black Muslim has experienced mm. within wider society and within Muslim society. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's a refusal to view it within that terms that all racism is equal. Um, yeah. And therefore, you know, if, some, if a white person has said something bad to me, it's just the same as... Uh, I don't know, uh, me say something bad to someone else. I, I don't know what the thinking is there, but there seems to be this refusal to really engage with this idea that actually there's a hierarchy mm. uh, even within the Muslim, Muslim community. Mm. Um, and I want to I take the discussion in a slightly different direction, speaking mm. of community. Mm. You know, some of the discussions that I've had whereby I've said, actually, hold on, we need to re-examine our racism as South Asians. Mm. Um, I've been told, and I'm sure you probably have heard this as well, which is, no, no, we don't, we don't need to discuss that because what happens is by discussing these things, you are breaking up the concept of one ummah. Um, and, you know, what we need to do is just like say, everyone's one ummah and we're all one, you know, part of Islam and everyone's welcome. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> that's clearly not the case. That's clearly not the case. Um, yeah. how, have, how have you dealt with that discussion if, you, if you've ever had it? Yeah, well, this ummah is an ummah that doesn't actually fully include black people anyway. So when people always say that to me, I'm like, well, I'm this ummah and this is my problem. I'm in right. this ummah yeah. and I'm getting this. I'll give you an example. The first time I went to Hajj a few years ago, the, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I don't know if, you know, the if people know that when you see the Kaaba for the first time that there is a recommendation that you when the moment you glance at the Kaaba that some of your du'as Allah could potentially accept your du'a at that time so it's mm -hmm. a sacred act so I was uh, lowering my gaze until I got as close as I could to the Kaaba looked up made my du'a alhamdulillah and then the mm -hmm. adhan was called for the salah so I went to do what every Muslim does around the world which is a stawu make the lines and go and join the lines I joined the line mm -hmm. next to a sister from uh, a South Asian sister in a, in a Shabarkamis, and she um, couldn't speak Arabic or I, I couldn't understand her language. She couldn't understand my language. And so, but she didn't want me to pray next to her. And she got oh, violent. Yeah. She got violent. I was punched and kicked in my first salah outside wow. the Kaaba. So where is this ummah? You know, when people say that to me, I'm like, okay, well, there's this ummah that I'm supposed to be a part of. But the first Kaaba moment I saw the Kaaba, the first salah, I tried to pray in front of it in Hajj, when this fighting is haram anyway, especially in Hajj, it nullifies your Hajj. And I was caught between having to fight back or wow. and lose my Hajj, which I saved all this money to come and do this Hajj the first time in my life at that grand old age that I'm finally there, yeah. or to just stand there and in, enter my salah and, and, and deal with this in whichever way I can. So I don't want to go into the details of that incident, but it's, it, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, that we, there are very few places. Well. Where, yeah, so you're in front of the Kaaba, the <laughs> most holiest of places, and a, and a Muslim woman who is a woman of color, it's not a white woman, it's not, a, it's not even a Saudi woman, you know, who's, who's attacking mm -hmm. me because she's being, you know, she, she thinks, oh, she's coming over here and <laughs> taking her Hajj space or whatever it is that she may, no, it was a East, it was a South, South Asian woman from the subcontinent who was abusing me and kicking me. And then she, and then she carried on doing that after the Salah to another sister from Ghana whose foot accidentally touched hers at the Tashahud and she was wiping her foot as if a dog had just touched her. So wow, this, incredible. Yeah. So wow. these are our lived experiences. And this, this conversation about breaking up the Ummah, I think I find it very, um, very interesting. You know, I was going to say suspicious, yeah. but I won't say that. I find it very interesting when <laughs> we're, we're very, as, a commu as communities, in the plural, as communities, we're very, very um, um, uh, literate in what Islamophobia looks like. We're very yes. literate in what Islamophobia is or isn't. 
when it's when it's being perpetrated against you, when other well-meaning liberal people are reinforcing it, because that is also very insidious and very dangerous. It's it's very mm-hmm. easy to identify the guy who winds his window down, and, and these things have happened to me as well, winds his window down from a car and calls you a so-and-so terrorist and tells you to go mm-hmm. home and all of that. Stuff. We know what that looks like. We know when that kind of racist is being racist. But when the liberal, well-meaning, suited person is saying it, saying the same thing or writing columns or articles or books or giving speeches and reinforcing that or passing legislation in the same way, that's very insidious. And I think as a Muslim community, we can fall into two camps. The ones who will say the very blatant racist things who will kick you and hajj and not have you pray next to them. And then the ones who will say, no, but we're going to break up the ummah because they don't realize, actually, if this is your ummah and you care about it, then every problem from your ummah is also my problem. And I also, for example, if someone raises the issue of uh, uh, abuse, domestic abuse, for instance, let's, let's, let's say, and, and someone was to sure. say, no, 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 let's not talk about domestic violence. Let's not talk about that. It's just going to break up the ummah. If it's happening to people in the community, then it's part of your community's problems and you need to address it. And like you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. that people from certain demographics hold more power. And I think when we talk mm-hmm. about racism and prejudice, racism is hand in hand with power. That is when racism is that it, it, it being expressed, it, it has to be within an element of power. So if people are in holding positions of power within organizations, masajid, committees, etc., they're the ones who are being uh, listened to more, then the responsibility right. falls on those people to make even more noise and act actively right. do something about those issues. And this is well, one of the things, is, especially within, within our community, I hear this 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 argument that, that we're all one ummah and, and we need to just all forgive each other and be besties and 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 let's not talk about it let's not mm. deal with let's not deal with it let's just mm. uh, um, paper over it. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that if you're 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 trying to um, uh, say that we're all one ummah, which we are, mm. that requires an investment. That yes. requires a proactive action. It's not just a slogan mm. that you'll get out of jail free for your auntie that said something that she shouldn't. Mm. It's actually something that requires investment. If we're one ummah, mm. then we should be one ummah on the committees of the mosques. We yeah. should be one ummah <laughs> right. on the organization of events. We yeah. should be one ummah in proactively um, addressing imbalances. Mm. Not just one ummah when it comes to please don't t- talk about the problems. Huh. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. I agree. I agree. I, 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 sorry, not, not to go on too long, but I can definitely say from my own experience as well, I've, I've since becoming, obviously, I, uh, I, I'm a, a, a white convert to Islam. Hmm. So obviously I had no experience of racism before, hmm. uh, before becoming Muslim. Hmm. Um, and then when I became Muslim, I, I, I got a few comments about terrorists this and, hmm. and a, a few bits and bobs. When I got married and I started going out with my wife, hmm. I realized that it's on a whole different level. Hmm. And just mm-hmm. I remember one day, in, hmm. just in, in, in one day, in one incident, hmm. uh, my, my wife and I walking together hmm. uh, were abused and shouted at more than six times. Right. Um, wow. And that, that never happened to me before. Uh. Yes. Even just as, as soon as I became Muslim, suddenly there was this thing called Islamophobia that affected me. Yeah. But when I when I when I uh, had a an interracial marriage and and mm. mixed race kids, and when you said about people touching people's yeah. hair, yeah, it frustrates the heck out of me when people right. suddenly <laughs> just go and start petting my children like they're yes. like, like they're, they're puppies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure they don't mean it necessarily in a bad way, um, but. It's like you don't do that to other people. You don't That's go right. over and just start touching their children without, without um, uh, when, when you don't even know them. Yeah. Um, right. and I mean, so, that happens. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad that you said that because I'm sorry that it's happened to you. I'm sorry, actually. I'm not glad. I, I wish it hadn't happened to you. And I wish your mm-hmm. wife and your children didn't suffer that. But I'm glad that you're explaining it that way because people often say, oh, well, we all, like, you know, like you said earlier, one, one of your brothers said earlier about um, coming from a different demographic and experiencing racism. But like you said, you, you as a white man didn't experience it. And then you as a Muslim experienced Islamophobia. And then you as a man with a black wife and mixed race children is seeing a whole new world. Yeah. Mm. And, and that escalation has mm. been, has been marked. Mm. And then when I, when I hear a lot of brothers that I know who are well-intentioned and good people, 
saying, oh, no, it's not really that bad. And, and like, um, even like, I was in some groups that got very heated about this discussion. Hmm. And they were like, oh, we all dealt with racism in the 80s and we got over it. Hmm. And, <laughs> right. and then you're like, no, you're not understanding here. And yeah. we're not, as we, as we ask other people hmm. to listen to our experiences and take our experiences about state violence yes. and Islamophobia seriously, yep. mm-hmm. and we demand as a community, as we should, and as mm. we rightly should, we demand mm. as a community that our voices be taken seriously mm. on Islamophobia and on uh, state violence towards us, mm. we're then neglecting that same right within our own community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm really actually happy that you've uh, explained it in that way, because that's, that's basically it. That is it. We are very literate in this issue of what Islamophobia is and the demands that we have of the wider communities who, whose, whose own people inflict this upon us. And we are not doing the same thing with racism. And the issue mm-hmm. of what you, when you explained how you can see the market difference of the people's interaction and the levels of racism and, and how it's escalated in your own life experience from your uh, view as a, as a man who's still a white man, that you can't change the fact that you're, you know, that's not. So if you were not visibly Muslim, you could still step back yeah. into a society uh-huh. that would not, would not mistreat you in, in a, in a racist sense. Um, but well, your... thanks to hipsters, even my beard, <laughs> I still get exactly, past exactly. <laughs> in certain parts of Shoreditch, you, you could, you know, you could easily get away with it as it were. But, um, I think it's really, um, I don't know how many men and women who are married to people who are black have that insight. And I think I'm so glad that you said it. And that's why I was saying, I'm so glad that you said this, not that it's happened, not glad that it's happened to you, but glad that you said it because not many people do this. And I know many of us, many of us very close to home who struggle with getting their own partners who are non-black, who are white or different backgrounds to understand or see what they're experiencing, to understand Mm -hmm. and see what their children are experiencing. And I think there's this, term that um uh, gaslighting which is when you are basically telling someone no 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 that's not that's not what's happened and the person's telling you their experience and you are and the person is uh belittling their experience or denying their experience and and reframing their experience for them that happens a lot in in our communities and those people will be and i i and i find it and i will say suspicious this this time i i say it with my chest as they say you know i well, i find it very suspicious when muslims expend so much energy defending people who are racist or discriminatory and not using the same energy and not coming with that same energy to hold those people who are racist responsible. So the energy that it takes for someone to say, well, maybe they didn't mean it. Maybe they meant this. Or maybe when someone just came and stuck their hands in your hair. And this happens to us as well. I mean, I wear hijab now in public, but when I'm in private and I'm with other Muslim women, Muslim sisters will run to me like I'm an animal in a zoo and stick their fingers in my hair because I'm a black woman without asking me, without anything. So, and it still happened. It used to happen before I started wearing hijab with, with all kinds of women, but it's happening now with sisters who are practicing. We've all entered the same space. We are now in a, you know, in a wedding or whatever it is, and it's a private women's space. You take your hijab, suddenly people are like, oh, your hair, and putting their hands in your hair without asking you, and they are not doing that with anybody else in the room. Those are microaggressions. And when you then tell your partners or relatives who are, you know, these people who then spend all that time gaslighting your experience, gaslighting the experience of their own children, not defending their children. And then their children are saying, this happened, that happened. And the same people are saying, well, maybe maybe they were old. Maybe they were old and, and therefore a bit senile and the uncle or the auntie. Making and the excuses. Who, making excuses for people who did something blatantly racist. And I think that's where, mm-hmm. you know, and I think uh, we... I think it's better to give an example in a non-Muslim community and non-Muslim um, for this, because I don't want people to, to think, um, I don't want people to get upset, basically. But yeah. when we think about, um, I know, and I've read of a lot of experiences, and I know people who I've spoken to who are black or mixed race and have white parents, white mothers a lot of the time, who have used the N-word at them when they wow. get angry, right? Wow. So their mother will lose their patience and then call them the N-word. Wow. So this is the woman who birthed them. This is the woman who raised them. So the idea that, Again, like Muslims sometimes think they get a free pass because they're Muslim, they cannot no. possibly be racist. There are people who think because they have married with a black person or, or, or had a child with a black person that that somehow um, uh, exempts them from being a racist. Those experiences 
are real. Those people are ha having those experiences. They exist. That pe people, people who are with black partners and do have mixed race children are not opening their eyes to what they're experiencing, are not as empathic and, and as willing to understand as you are. And I think your children and your wife are blessed that you are on their side because so many of us don't have that support. And I think it's important that people don't get uh, slack and lazy and think, oh, because and I'm, I'm good. I'm so good that I'm Muslim mm -hmm. and I'm married to a black person. Therefore, I can't possibly be one of those mm -hmm. people. No, they can. And they quite it, often it, are. It, it, it's funny that you mentioned that about um, in sister spaces, what happens because my wife doesn't take her hijab off even when she's uh, in sister's only group. <laughs> for that um, for that reason. Yeah, for that reason. Because right. she's just hey, like, no. goes, like <laughs> literally, yeah. she'll only really take it off with her close, close best yeah. buddies, basically. Right. I rest my case. I think this is a, a fascinating discussion. Um, and we're rapidly running out of time. And I want to touch on in the remaining sort of five minutes we have left about um, cultural spaces. Mm. So I think we kind of touched on it slightly a little bit earlier on talking about madrasas and this kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, so it's, I think, um, you know, as a sound, God. One of the areas that I, I've noticed, um, and I, 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 again, sorry, from my own experience, I've, tried to encourage my wife to, to go on sort of like sisters spa days and mm. you know like the, the charity events will organize like a, a, a beauty day or something mm. like to, for, for things and my wife's like there's no point there'll be mm. no one there who mm. understands what my beauty needs are anyway yeah she's right so yeah. that 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 space there's no point in me engaging in that mm. because everybody's going to be there for for um mm. getting their hair done yeah. and no, no one's going to know anything about my hair yeah. So well, look, what, what, what I want to kind of discuss more <clears throat> kind of uh, in more clear terms is the cultural aspects of being South Asian or Pakistani, right? So we mm. have uh, Nath and Gwali and Nasheed and so on and so forth, which are um, seen as Islamic. Yeah. Now, within, within the whole of the African continent, there are many, many cultures and many of them are Islamic. They've rooted yeah. within Islam, the types yeah. of clothes uh, that are worn, the poetry and so on and so forth. Yeah, and yet we have uh, cultural institutions uh, mm. in this country, and I'm sure across the globe, mm. that continue to view African cultures as yes. being anti-Islamic. Yeah, 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 as inherently un-Islamic. I absolutely agree mm. with you, and I think. This comes down to the fact that black people are expected to, um, because the whole idea of racism is that somebody's being dehumanized. A whole entire group mm -hmm. of people are being dehumanized. So if they're already being dehumanized by the concept of racism, then so is everything associated with them. So right. black people are expected to leave their hair at the door. They're expected to leave their culture at the door. They're expected to leave their food, their languages often, their anything at the door, their poetry, their art at the door and then come into this thing and, and take on, like people will get really happy when they see black people wearing saris or shawakamizis at events and stuff and go, oh, look, as if now you've become, you know, or even white reverse. I've noticed a lot of white sisters are expected to kind of when people get happy when they wear traditional clothes from other continents and other cultures, as if it's more Islamic, as if it's somehow right. closer to Islam. So, and leave right. their own and leave their own culture. So the, I think it's the pressure for black people to leave those aspects of their culture is, is, is damaging and it comes from that root of you're dehumanized anyway. We don't, everything to do with you is pagan and animalistic. So uh, keep it over there and just come in here. And ideally, mm -hmm. if you could come in here without your kinky Afro and your, and your black skin, that would be even better for people. Right. So um, I think that's, that's what it is. And I, I, I completely share your wife's frustrations because I too have that issue and I, and I refuse to go to those things now because what is the point? There is no point. And so what has happened as a result is that black people have had to make spaces for themselves. We have had to make spaces where mm -hmm. we can enjoy an Eid event, an Iftar event, a spa, a, you know, getting together and doing these things. And trust me, that is, the, that is it's like, it's like, subhanAllah, <laughs> the minute you do that, people will come out of the woodworks and call you racist. Well, I, will, yeah. I will hear the very same anti-black people will come out and say, that's racist. How can you have a black Muslim event for this and a black Muslim event for that? Well, we need it because right. when we come to the mainstream ones, the mainstream ones are clearly for certain demographics to the exclusion of mm -hmm. others. So we've needed to make these spaces. And I think, and I've had a lot of experiences recently, especially um, with a lot of these kind of things where, you know, certain events have been advertised, people have lost their minds. People have lost their minds about the fact that it's black people being invited to come and celebrate an occasion, mm -hmm. an event. And, you know, and I think also sometimes you get black people who are a very small minority who will come and do this. And that is part of, who will come and, and join that 
uh, echo of, yeah, yeah, that's racist. We shouldn't do this. Because this issue of racism affects people so deeply that people internalize it. People internalize it so mm-hmm. much. Like, like we internalize Islamophobia and you'll find people doing gymnastics for, for the uh, approval of certain demographics of, the, of, of mm-hmm. governments and things because they want to be accepted. Because they want to be accepted. It's coming from a place of, I need you to accept me. And in the same way, you'll find some black people will come and say, no, 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 he wasn't being racist when someone was being racist. I don't find it offensive. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, I'm a black person. I think it's cool that he said that or it's fine that he said that. That kind of thing is coming, from my understanding, from a very uh, sad place of internalized racism. So these cultural spaces are necessary. I was at an iftar. It's like this Ramadan, wallahi, the anti-blackness was ramped up. I don't know if it's, you know, was ramped up for me, wherever I went, it just seemed to be in my face. And at one, one, for fun of one of the nights, I went out for iftar with somebody, uh, a member of my family, and uh, a black member of my family. Not, not, not. And um, and we were the last people to receive our food, even though we'd booked a table and we um, had, you know, placed our order. And we, you know, mm-hmm. we were sitting there for ages. And it was Ramadan, so we were both fasting and very hungry, a long fast as it is. We got our food like half an hour later than everybody else had received their food in Ramadan. Wow. Even though the people who came and sat next to us, we, it was such a crowded place that we had to share a table. The people who came and sat at our table had no booking because I saw that they'd come later where um, two women who were not in hijab and weren't visibly Muslim, um, who were from a uh, demographic that they could have easily been, they were white women, basically. They were white Arab sisters who were sisters, but wow. the people at the restaurant didn't know who they were. And they, um, got the, they ordered the same food that we ordered, but they got their food half an hour before myself and my family member who were sitting there. And I, and I only got my food when I had to call the waitress and say, uh, the, the serving staff and say, this is beginning to feel a little bit racist because we're the only black people in here and we still haven't eaten. It had to get to that point where wow. I had to say that in order for them to go, oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, let's go and get your food. So, these, so when now, now Muslims then want to have an iftar where I'm not going to have to wait half an hour to get my food and I'm the only black person in this, in this restaurant, the only black people in this whole entire restaurant, and then we're the only people who haven't been served and with, with no regard for us. It's like there's research recently that has come out that's shown that black people in hospitals and black children receive uh, fewer painkillers for the same conditions that non-black people suffer from. So it's this understanding that because people view us as subhuman, that we can handle pain, we can handle hunger, we can handle disrespect, we can handle being dehumanized, Mm -hmm. we can handle being petted like a zoo, we can handle being told, it's okay, your pain is fine, you don't need to worry about it. But an Asian person can say, somebody called me the P word in the street or something, then suddenly people will lose their minds. Uh, uh, You Mm -hmm. know, and it's the the not equal settings, there's a... uh, inequality in the way that people's the transgressions and abuses against us are viewed and so these cultural spaces are necessary in my view they will become unnecessary the minute that every other community event is welcoming of black people when that has happened then by all means tell us that oh you're having exclusionary events but up until that moment let us create our own spaces our own spas our own black hair care our own lines for products for our communities because no one else is serving us I, I, I have to say, it, it's, it's, it's so, so many parallels. Uh, this, this is why, and, and maybe it's because I didn't really experience anything before, mm. that I don't get how people who have experienced it can't therefore like draw, draw that a, a step further. Mm. Because I know like as much as I love um, many, many non-Muslim people and mm. um, I've still got lots of non-Muslim friends and mm. most of my family mm. there's a certain uh there's a, it's hard to word this correctly but there's a certain there's a, a certain uh ease that you get when you're mm. around Muslims mm. yeah mm. um that you know you're not going to have to worry about something being misinterpreted you're not going to have to worry about them not understanding something about mm. having to explain an element of there's a shorthand there's a common shorthand Exactly. Yeah. And that that safety and that freedom, which I know other Muslims um, uh, all understand mm. and uh, often talk about, they mm. don't understand that those same microaggressions, those same issues that they they suffer mm. when they're in in largely non-Muslim society, and then that they welcome that safe Muslim space, mm. they don't feel that the, the the that same respite, that same 
um, duty of care yeah. is offered to our black brothers and sisters. That's right. Mm-hmm. And this is why I said to you this conversation is tiring. Because for some of us, there is no space. Even our own households can be those oppressive spaces where people who are using Islam and doing the whole not all Muslims, hashtag not all Muslims are like this and hashtag this, that and the other. They're using that kind of understanding that like the people who come and say not all white people, you know, the hashtag not all white people. Mm. They'll do the same thing. Oh, well, maybe it's just this, this, this. And so there are no spaces. Some of us literally have zero spaces. We're all very small, small, small places where you know, one or two people that we know we can trust and we can go places with them. But on the whole, those, that safety and that being able to, that exhalation, being able to just exhale and go, I'm okay, I'm being held in this space or this person understands, or at the very minimum, if they don't understand, they will keep their mouth shut because that also is, is, is helpful. If somebody doesn't know what to say or do, the best thing they can do is say, I don't understand. I don't know how I can support you. I don't, I, I haven't had this experience and I don't know it, but I'm sure it must be painful because it seems like it's hurt you. And I'm sorry that that's happened to you. At the very mm-hmm. minimum, say that, you know, at the very, don't, don't jump in and think, oh, because, because I'm Muslim, I've somehow got to defend all my fellow non-black racist Muslims. You have no obligation to defend racism. You have no obligation to defend oppression. You have no obligation to defend these kind of indefensible acts. So these spaces are very, very limited. And I think you know, I, I just remembered something about Abu Dhar, a small vis, a physical description of him. When I read his biography, it was unrelated to this issue a while back. I remember reading something like he was dark skinned. He had a brown, brown, dark brown skin for an, uh, of the Arab communities at the time, and he was quite hairy. And I remember thinking, oh, that, that, that reminds me of certain demographics, that this man, who's also a very dark brown man himself, is finding it in himself at the time to be racist to another black person. So when people say, because we're brown and we're from the subcontinent or we're from uh, Latino communities and we're from these demographics and we're brown people of color, we're under one big umbrella, actually they're still making active spaces to be racist to another, like a, uh, it's like a rung. They, they view it as a rung on this ladder of racism, mm-hmm. that the hierarchies, that you get this um, proximity to whiteness basically. And the lower you are mm-hmm. in that proximity to whiteness, the more you will constantly be subjected to this abuse. And even in households, even in families, like you said, that this place of being able to just breathe, those things don't exist. And so black people have had to form a lot of those spaces. And I think what's happening a lot these days is also not just Muslim black spaces. There are a lot of black spaces full stop and young black people or black people in general are going to those social and cultural events organized by black people of all faiths and none because they don't have to deal with that racism. And this is one thing I've heard yeah. from, from mm. the ISOC scene, mm. um, that uh, young people attending university are, are gravitating sometimes in some cases more towards the Caribbean societies yeah. and, and the, 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 the all black spaces rather than mm. the ISOC spaces. Yeah. And partly because then they're not made to feel included and welcome in, 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 in uh, the, the ISOC scene, which yeah. for a long time in many spaces has been very overwhelmingly from uh, the South Asian yeah. Uh, uh, background. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I see that and I know that that's how. And I, I know for a fact some young people I've you know, spoken to recently about these kind of things that have had to, um, black young people who've had to challenge their friends, people who they've known for X amount of a year, years, you know, who are their ISOC friends, who they pray with every Jum'ah, who they do their iftars with and everything, who are now using explicitly racist language. In a young men who were born in the, young men and women who were born in the late 90s, who are children born, you know, like third, fourth generation Brits, using a full sentence in English. And then when it comes to describing a black person using a derogatory Urdu term, which was one of the first words in Urdu that I ever learned. Um, so wow. yeah, you, you trust me, you know, you, you learn, I, I can, I, I'm fluent in racist in very many languages, unfortunately. Um, you know, and so. That, that same term was one of the first Urdu words that I, I, I ended up learning as well. Right. Uh, really, just because of how commonly it's used. Yeah. I think and, probably, probably Pani first and then that. Right. Followed by, followed by like the, the, the one for white as well. Do you know what there I mean? You, exactly. Yes. There you go. So this is happening. These wow. are young people sitting around at ISOCs, Islamic events, holding dinners at the, you know, 
and somebody just uttering this word and just going, oh, let's just, you know, and then referring to a black person over there by that term and being racist and laughing. And then the one black person in the group will have to say, take on the labor, which they never should have taken on themselves. They shouldn't have to, is what I'm saying. But nobody else in the group, nobody else is accounting them. No other Asian young person on the table or at the the prayer room is saying, "Uh, guys, that's out of order. That's haram. That's wrong. That's that's." That's a bit racist, isn't it? Nobody's saying it. So then it falls onto us black people to be traumatized, to be enraged and to educate all at the same time. And it mm. is tiring. You know, uh, it's been such a fascinating and genuinely enlightening conversation. And I don't think it's ever a good place to stop. But I think, unfortunately, um, we're going to have to end it there. Um, and uh, you know what? I think I think we need to have this conversation again. I think we need to perhaps get yourself back on hold then, or get someone else on to further enlighten us on this topic. Um, mm. Can but, I just uh, plug a book? Sorry. That's not my book, because okay. um, absolutely. And it's it's a book by uh, uh, as far as I'm aware, she's a non-Muslim lady, but her name's Rennie Edo Lodge, and she's written a book called "Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race." Yes, and it's come from a blog that she wrote where. She was wrote an essay in this blog saying, I'm just tired of talking about racism and then ended up having to write a whole book so that she would have to stop. And because it's tiring. So I would recommend anybody who wants to know more about this, read that. And another brother called Habiba Kande has written a book called Illuminating the Darkness. And that talks about like, mm-hmm. a historical, the historical aspect of Islam and black Muslims in, in, Islamic, um, in our Islamic heritage, which we don't really know about and don't read about. So those are two books that I would recommend because the labor of educating people about this should not fall on black people. Like I said, it's very, very tiring. Jazakallah Khadan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for Thank you. Give, give, giving of yourself to, to do this. Um, Thank you. We, we, we do, do hear and understand that like, this isn't something that you should, um, uh, should always be put onto, onto your shoulders. Mm. And, and the, uh, the obligation of fixing it is one that falls on the rest of us. Um, the, the those of us that, to be honest, are, are in a, a position where this isn't um, our day to day experience. Mm. This is with the experience that we're giving other people, and mm-hmm. we need to we need to listen to our brothers and sisters. We need to take that that time um, to to listen and to invest. Actually, put effort into turning slogans about one ummah. Mm. into a manifest reality mm. um and honestly thank you so much for for taking the time to to, to share these experiences and, and to, to, to talk about your lived experience thank you thank you thank you for your time thank you again to sister hadan for illuminating some of the experiences that black people have been living with and and, and struggling with within the muslim community I would like to end this by sort of asking everybody to, no matter what approach you took when you came into this podcast, to listen with empathy and an open heart and to just take in somebody's experience and lived experience um, without necessarily feeling the need to defend yourself, defend your people, defend your position. Because as I said, we are one Ummah, but that requires investment. That requires us to take that step and hold ourselves to account on that. Nadim? No, there's nothing else I can say. You know, just uh, once again, Jazakallah Khair and Isad Haudan for actually, I, I know it's tiring, um, as you mentioned. So we really, really do appreciate you coming and talking to us about this. Um, and hopefully, you know, many people will uh, be able to, to listen and actually take on board what you said. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.